The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So often, regular, ordinary, everyday items can become symbols so that we, when we see them, we think of something else. We associate it with something else. Like, let me just give you an example. I've got a couple things up here. Um, just like a common example. So this is a, a light bulb. And if you see this, you might think of a lamp or a light or something like that. But if you see a light bulb over top of someone's head, that becomes a symbol, right? That becomes a symbol of, oh, that person has an idea. We say a bright idea or the light bulb just came on. That becomes a symbol, like if you see that depicted or drawn, that becomes a symbol of something else when you see a light bulb over someone's head. Well, how about this one? This one's a little bit more um, just kind of random for me personally, but um, this is a can of grape soda. Do we have any grape soda fans here in the room? A couple very fervent, you know, up there. The rest of you are like, no, I'm not 11, so I don't like grape soda. Um, <laughs> So I held a can of grape soda. I am also a fan of grape soda. And when I see a can of grape soda, I think of one particular vending machine from when I was a teenager. The church that uh, I went to, we'd go to, to camp in the summers and there's this particular campground and there's this one particular vending machine that for some reason I would always only get grape soda out of and I remember I would take my two quarters and I'd put them in because it was 50 cents and if I didn't have quarters I'd pull out a dollar and try like seven or eight times to get that to go into the vending machine and then if it was too crinkled, do you remember what you did with a crinkled dollar? You kind of rub it on the side of the vending machine, you know what I'm talking about? Straighten it out. Then I'd put the dollar in, sometimes I'd get my change back, okay? And every time I would get at that vending machine grape soda. And so when I see, for some reason for me, when I see a can of grape soda, I think of that particular vending machine. But this one's a little bit more personal here. This, what I'm holding in my hands, is an authentic Danish kringle. It's a type of pastry. Now just a show of hands, if you have ever had Danish Kringle before, please raise your hands. I see about seven people. I'm going to pray for your souls. <laughs> you have apparently, most of you, not ever lived, okay? So this is an authentic Danish Kringle. It is from Racine, Wisconsin. That is where you want to get Kringle from, okay? And lucky for us South Floridians, Trader Joe's now carries Kringle from Racine, Wisconsin. So, after this service, <laughs> don't walk. Run to Trader Joe's, okay? You want to get one of these. Now, th this is what I always think of when I see a Danish Kringle. Um, my grandfather is from Racine, Wisconsin. That's his hometown. And in that part of Wisconsin, a lot of Danish people, when they came to America, they settled there. And his parents were from Denmark. He's Danish, and he was Danish. And so every Christmas, we would bring in from Racine a Danish Kringle, and we'd always give it to him. And it reminds me of my grandpa, because he, that was so much like his personality. He loved all things that were sweet. He loved sweets. He loved ice cream sundaes, and cookies, and brownies, and candy. And it reminded me of him, because that was very similar to his personality. He was a very kind 
and gentle, loving man, and he was the kind of grandpa, and I bet one of your grandparents at least is like this maybe, that in, in his eyes, we grandchildren could do absolutely no wrong whatsoever. He would completely spoil us to the point where leaving us alone with just him was borderline irresponsible, okay? <laughs> My sister and I could go to him and say, hey, we just lit your car on fire, and he'd be like, oh, I'm sure you didn't mean to. That's fine. Let it burn down. It's okay. That's kind of how he was. He just spoiled us. There was not discipline, not a lot of accountability. He's just a sweet, gentle, kind man. And so whenever I see or think about Kringle, I think of my grandfather. There's certain things that they kind of become symbols. And when we see it, it makes us think of something. Now, we're looking at this story in the book of Ezekiel. And in this story, and it's a very interesting, kind of strange story that happens. But in this story, God says, I am going to show you something that will so blow your mind that you will then know that I am God and know a little bit more about who I am. It not only shows that I'm God, but shows who it displays his attributes. In other words, when you see this, it'll be so powerful that it will permanently cue you to think about me. I want to take a look at that in this story. Now, let me just get you a little bit caught up on how this, this episode plays out in the book of Ezekiel. First of all, the backdrop historically is that at the time God's people, Israel, at the time, they had walked away from God. They had rejected him altogether. And they said, no thanks, we're going to do things our own way. And now they were reaping the consequences of it. They were in dire straits. They had left God altogether. They are, they are in a bad place. And so God is going to, has raised up this prophet, Ezekiel, and he's sending Ezekiel to him. But in order to, to um, convey the message that he wants Ezekiel to tell them, he gives Ezekiel a vision. Now, when I say vision, I'm not talking like he's got an idea and he's casting vision. It's not that kind of vision. I'm saying like a literal vision. Like, think of the most vivid dream that you've ever had. Like, one of those dreams that it felt like you were there. Like, you felt everything. You felt all the fear or grief or pain or anxiety. It felt like you were there so much so that when you woke up, it took you a while to convince yourself that that didn't actually happen. You know what I'm talking about? It's like one of those dreams, but even more vivid because he's awake. It's not just like virtual reality. It's not like a hologram. He is there. He's experiencing everything. So here's the vision. God swoops up Ezekiel and he drops him in the middle of a valley. And he looks around and, and he describes what he sees. He says, it was just full of bones, human bones everywhere. It's almost like imagine an ancient battle had taken place there and an army had gotten absolutely annihilated. And that had happened. He said the bones were just everywhere, human remains, he said, but they were dry bones. So the battle had obviously taken place maybe decades or even centuries before. They were just dry, bleached bones all over. And Ezekiel's right in the middle. So there's just bones just all around him. And God says this to Ezekiel. He says, hey, um, can these bones, can they live? And I'm, how is Ezekiel supposed to answer that? Well, I would say no, but God's asking me, so I, I don't know. And he says, well, only you know, God. So God doesn't explain it any more to him other than that. He just says, okay, then here's what I want you to do. I've got a message 
for the bones. I want you to preach to the bones. Ezekiel's looking around. There's no one else around. It's just him and these bones. He's supposed to preach at them. And God says, here's what I want you to say. I want you to look at the bones and I want you to say, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what God says. Behold, I will breathe on you. I'll breathe life into you. I'll cause your bones to come back together. I'll cause sinews to grow on you, flesh to come upon you, skin to cover you. And then I will breathe on you, breathe life into you. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Go ahead, Ezekiel. He's looking around like, okay, this is strange, but okay. And he says, I did what God told me. And he says, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And it says, as he started speaking to the bones, something started to happen. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And some of the bones started shaking a little bit. This one over here started quivering. A scapula over there just kind of scooted away for a second. He's like, whoa. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He says he's going to breathe on you and the bones are going to come together. And it says, and as as he's saying this, the bones start rattling together. The sound all over the valley, these bones kind of starting to move and starting to to move together. And when he says you'll come back together, it says the bones come together to its bone. So in other words, it's not just a random pile of bones and skeletons are just, you know, being recompiled. No, it's not like that. It's they are finding the original bones that they belong to. So imagine this, he's standing there, he's talking, and there's a femur that's looking for its other leg bones, and then they come together, and a patella comes hopping along and hops on top. And then these ribs are kind of looking for each other, and they're all scooting around, and then they kind of all kind of click into place, and a sternum's on top, there's skulls looking around for their backbones and scooting all over the place. And they all find their bones, the skeletons are all coming together, and he's got to be thinking, man, I don't even want to say this next part. He says, and the Lord says, sinews will come upon you. And then just springing out of the joints, all these ligaments and tendons start coiling around and and muscle fibers start moving along the bones. And he's probably like, I can't even look. He says, and flesh will come upon you. And he looks in and inside rib cages, you see organs starting to populate and flesh growing on top of it and eyeballs filling the the, uh, eye cavities and skulls. And then he says, and skin will come upon you. He's just saying what the Lord told him. And now all of a sudden skin is growing down arms. And he looks and he sees all of these bodies perfectly healthy, whatever wounds they had been dealt, they're just completely gone, these healthy bodies. And then the breath comes. And over the sides of the mountains, down into the valley, from every single direction, this wind comes rushing, kicking up dust into the valley. And he must have heard thousands of bodies make this sound all at once. (gasps) And they're filled with breath. And all of a sudden, their eyes start blinking. Their fingers start moving. They're pushing themselves up off the ground. And now, standing all the way around him are thousands and thousands of bodies coming back to life, standing there like an army. That would be pretty freaky. Now he's standing right there. His whole vision is played out. Very dramatic. And then God's going to explain why this whole vision has played out for Ezekiel. Look what it says. We're going to look at Ezekiel 37, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, 
these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. God says, okay, son of man, and that was his his favorite title for Ezekiel. God keeps calling Ezekiel son of man, which is an interesting title. He's basically saying son of humans. It's basically a way of God reminding Ezekiel that he's just a human standing before God. So it's almost like calling him little human. He says, little human, these are what my people are saying. Right now in the dire situation that they're in and the difficulty they're saying, oh, look, we're, we're just dry bones. We're hopeless. We are cut off. And they're saying these things and they're all just different ways of saying we're dead. I mean, think about this. They're saying, they're saying we are dry bones. So they're saying it's like we're dead inside. We're just a bag of bones, lifeless. There's no passion. There's, there's nothing going on. We feel empty. We're dead inside. And then they say, but we're dead inside. And then they say, we're, we're hopeless. We're not dead inside. It's, it's our future is hopeless. If you knew the circumstances that we're in right now, there's just no way out. There's no way that this is going to turn out for good. It's just, it looks bad. Anything that's going to happen, it looks like we're going to lose. We are hopeless. Our future is bleak. It's dead. And then they say that this last one that they're saying is, is really very packed with meaning. It says, we are cut off. Like, in other words, cut off from the land of the living. Cut off from the source of life. Like, imagine like a branch cut off. When I was in high school, I did uh, lawn maintenance at, a, at an organization. They had a, a, a large property. It's probably about eight acres. And I would work there over the summers. And, and I'd, I'd work doing the lawn maintenance there with, a, with the rest of a, the team. And one of the days when it was hedge trimming day, I dreaded hedge trimming day. Because there were hedges all over this property, just hedges everywhere, eight acres just full of hedges. And I would carry this uh, gas-powered hedge trimmer, and there would be just ficus hedges that were like eight feet in the air. And so i go all the way down getting the, the sides and get the other side, and then reach up and get the top. And then there were small hedges that I, I had to trim around, and there was uh, other hedges that were, that were all around I had to shape. And just carrying that for a full day, and then again the next day, man, my arms were so sore. Because hedge trimming with a gas-powered hedge trimmer is all arms like this. And I just remember my arms being so sore. I remember one time... I was standing there and I was thinking to myself, man, if I'm not careful, my arms are just going to give out and I'm going to hurt myself. And no sooner did I think that, that my arms gave out and I went right into my leg with the hedge trimmer. Now, don't worry, I did not cut off my leg, okay? Don't worry. There was some blood and some screaming. Luckily, it just needed one small Band-Aid on my leg, okay? (laughs) But some of you know how I handle seeing my own blood, okay? I nearly called the ambulance anyway, just in case. Okay, but I, when I think of hedge trimming, I remember that moment, but I also remember every time that I would go um, to clean up the branches and the twigs that had been cut off. I'd clean up underneath the hedges and the ones that were hanging on the sides and clean off the tops of the hedges. And I always remembered, inevitably, a couple days later, I'd go back and I'd see twigs and branches that had been cut off but are still laying on top of the hedge. And I had missed it before when I cleaned them up. Now, why? Because when they were first cut off, they were still green and blending in with the rest of the edge. But when you go back a couple days later, 
It's brown, it's withered, it's easy to see. Think about this metaphor. This is what they're saying. They're saying we have been cut off. We have been cut off from the land of the living, cut off from the source of life. We are dying. Specifically, we have been cut off from God. We have rejected him, we have left him, and he is the source of life. Pretty much all these basic ways of saying we're dead, we're dying. Now before we see what God says in response, I want you to remember this was the path that they chose. They chose this path even though God had warned them and warned them and warned them and said, please don't go down this path. He sent prophets and leaders to say, please don't go down this path. He he waited for generation after generation. He had been so patient and so patient. And when finally they say, no, we are walking away, he let that happen. This is the path they had chose despite the pleading from God. And here's what he says. Verse 12. Let's finish off this episode. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. Did you see that? Despite all of his pleading and all of his patience and all of his grace and all of his mercy, they still continually over and over and over reject them and now they're living out the consequences of walking away from God. And God says, behold, what does he say? You chose this. Is that what he says? He says, no, I will call you out of your graves. I'm going to open your graves and I'm going to call you out. I am going to breathe life back into you with an unbelievable declaration of love and mercy. He even says, oh my people, you're still my people. He says, I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. What a powerful authoritative statement. I've said it, I will do it. Now I don't know if you have a friend, you might have a friend that when they're like, hey, let's, let's meet at Starbucks at 5.30. You may have this, a friend like this. You don't even bother going till about 6.15. And you might still beat them there, okay? Okay, but if you, you might have the person in your life that, man, when they say it, consider it done. You can take it to the bank. That's a very valuable person to have in your life. What is God saying? Because it's even more than that. So I've said it. I will do it. Because when God says it, it's not that he plans to later do it. When God says it, it's done. When he created the world, he said, let there be light, and light manifested instantaneously. He manifests it. He doesn't have to say it. I'll do it, and then go write it down so he remembers to calendar it, to explore how to do it, to figure out how to do it, and then have to re-research how to do it right, and then get it done. When he says it, it happens. He creates it. He says, I have said it. It is done. I will call you out of your graves. And then he says twice. And when that happens, you 
will know that I am God and what sort of God I am. Now, this is a powerful statement. I mean, okay, so that's a big statement from God. Has, like, has he done this yet? I mean, this is what he promised in the Old Testament. Has he, uh, has he done this yet? Is this already um, happened? Is it going to happen? Like, how should we interpret this? Well, it's interesting, a, a couple hundred years later, God sent another prophet to Israel. And he was similar in some ways to, to Ezekiel. In fact, one similarity is in the same way that God continually referred to Ezekiel as son of man, little human. Interestingly, this prophet referred to himself continually as son of man. And there was like some buzz about this particular individual. And people were, were listening to him teach. And they're saying, man, he, he teaches with so, author, so authoritatively. Who is this man? And they say, and, and man, have you heard? He's working miracles. He's done crazy things. Like he took water and turned it into wine. And he took like a small lunch and fed 5,000 people. And he, he walked on water. He's healing people. Like, who is this man? They're, they're talking about this guy named Jesus. And they're saying, maybe he's not just a prophet. Maybe he's, he's like, could he be the Messiah, the Christ? Or even more? This man, why is he calling himself the Son of Man. He's similar to Ezekiel in a lot of ways, except there's one very marked difference between this New Testament Son of Man, this new Son of Man, and this old Son of Man. There's one marked difference, and, and he describes it himself. Here's what Jesus said in Mark 9. I just want to read it to you. Um, it says this, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, talking about himself, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So wait a minute, there's a difference with this son of man versus the first son of man. This son of man, he's not coming to preach to dry bones and see sinews and then flesh and then skin. It's something completely different. He came actually to die. And sure enough, what happened one Thursday night, his disciples saw Jesus Looked healthy. He's arrested that night, dragged to a mock trial. They lied about him. Their false witnesses accused them. And a few of them were waiting outside where this trial was happening all night. And it's early in the morning on Friday. And they get a glimpse of him as they're taking him out of the trial. But he looks different. His flesh, his skin is no longer healthy. No, they see, man, he's been beaten. They beat him in there. And they had mocked him and spit on him and slapped him. And maybe they saw still like a bruising of a handprint across his face. And they had punched him and maybe the skin around his eye had, had swollen shut. And maybe there's blood trickling from a lip where the skin had been split open. I mean, we saw him and he was healthy, but now look at him. Look at his skin on his face. And they took him to the Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers beat him even more. They took rods, they beat him on the head, and they punched him, and they took a crown of thorns, and they placed it down. And so they've split open his skin with the rod, and they've pierced his, his skin with this crown of thorns. But then they did more than that. They took his wrists, and they tied him to a post, and they whipped him, and not with a whip like we typically think. They had different strands, and in each strand it had pieces of bone or rock or, or metal or glass, and the intention was not just to lacerate the skin but to mutilate the flesh. 
And so they whipped him until his back was just lacerated open, the flesh, chunks of it missing, bleeding profusely. And they put a cross on his back, and he carried this cross all the way up this mountain called Calvary, called Golgotha. And they place him there, and then they lay him on the cross. And then they drive nails through the sinews in his wrists and in his ankles, splitting open and maiming the sinews. And he hung on the cross, and he died, and then they placed him in a tomb. And the way that the tombs worked in this time period is there's a front chamber and then a back chamber. And the front chamber is more a preparation chamber. They'd leave the body there for a while, maybe a couple years. And the idea was that the body would decompose down to just bones, just dry bones. And once it was just dry bones, they would collect them and put them in a small box and, and put them in the back of the tomb. So they took Jesus off the cross and they placed him in the tomb, waiting for him to become dry bones. So how are these two men, these, one's called a son of man and one's called a son of man. This one came to preach to dry bones, seeing dry bones get sinews and flesh, and skin and breath. But this one didn't just come to preach at dry bones. He came to go into the grave for them. Skin was pierced. His flesh was mangled, his sinews were maimed, and he's left in the tomb to just be reduced to dry bones. But what was about to happen was going to be so powerful that it made the importance of the fact that he's calling himself Son of Man come alive because what he was about to do was so powerful that people would say, how could just a mere human, he couldn't just be human, he'd have to be God. And so from what he said, he was human, but from what he did, he demonstrated that he was God, describing who he was, fully God in the flesh, God in the flesh, not only the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And what he was just about to do was going to be so powerful that from that moment on, whenever someone looked at that, they would always remember, they would think of who God is and what sort of God He is. But see, we have all kinds of different ideas on what God is. We think different things. So for some people, when they think of God, God's just like this. For some, God is just, it's an idea, a theory. Some people would say, yeah, I, b I believe in God, but it it's just kind of what, like, uh, what I believe about that, like what I believe about quantum physics. It's just that, in that category, that's what I believe, but it doesn't really affect much of my everyday life. God is just really just kind of a, an idea or a belief. You know, for some, what they think of when they think of God is it it's like a vending machine, there are times that I go to God because I need something, and I look at the options and say, okay, this time, God, I need, I need physical healing, or this time I need help with this relationship, or I, I need this promotion, or I need success, or I need help, and I know what I want, and so I put in kind of my spiritual coins. I don't want to pay more than I have to. 
And it's this give and take with God. It's like, okay, God, I, I know that, that if you're going to do something for me, i got to do something for you. And I'm not really comfortable with what you say about these things in life, but I'm willing to pray a little bit and be nice to people, so I'll put that in, and what I'm expecting is to get out what I'm, I'm asking. God is kind of like a cosmic vending machine, kind of a give and take. But for some people, what they think of when they think of God, it, it, it's like he's just a kind grandfather. It's like he's holding milk and cookies. He just, he, he, he just looks at what we do and he says, it's okay because he understands. He understands our heart. He, he overlooks it. He just spoils us. He doesn't want to hold us accountable or discipline us or, or he doesn't want to parent us. He just wants to spoil us. And the problem with that is there comes a point in life where we actually need justice. And we say things to God like, how could you let them get away with that? How come the bad guy's winning? When are you going to hold them accountable for that? And what it reveals is we don't want God to be a kind, spoiling grandfather to everybody. We just want him to spoil us. And so some of us, when we think of God, we think of him as he's just a kind, spoiling grandfather. Just, he doesn't want to hold us accountable. He just overlooks everything and he, it's okay. But if there's a God, if there's a real God, then, then it's not a matter, we can't just make him up to be what we want. He is a being. He has attributes. He exists. That means that he's the creator of everything. And just like a, a painter has rights over his painting or a musician has rights over her song or an inventor has, holds the patent to what he's invented, he holds rights over us. We belong to him. He, he actually has ownership over us, so it's more than just, well, he'll forget. No, he actually has expectations over us. And it's more than, than just simply this contractual relationship as if he's a peer and it's like, God, I need this from you, and so I'm going to give this to you as if we can have some kind of contract. We owe everything to him. He owns us. It's more than just simply, he's not just an idea, some distant thing that has no play on our lives. He is a real, active being who knows you, who made you, who wired you, and is up to date on everything happening in your life and active in your life. And see, the challenge is if we don't know who God is, if we don't know what to look to to say, who is God, then we will come to a place where we're saying the same things that God's people said in this passage. And maybe you're saying this today. You're saying, man, when I look in my life right now, I feel like dry bones. I'm dead inside. I'm empty, I'm passionless, I'm lifeless. And I'm looking right now saying, man, there's got to be more to life than this. And maybe in, in your life, it's like I work, 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 and then I party on the weekends. And work, 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 and party on the weekends. And I've been in that cycle over and over and over. And at some point, I say, there's got to be more than this. Or maybe it's like I'm working so hard because one day I'm really going to live when I retire. And I'm working and working so that one day I can retire, but there's, and, I, and that's when life will really, I'll really start leave it, living, but there's this sinking feeling, this haunting feeling that one day you're going to be on that golf course and say, really, was this all that I was living for? Is this all there is? Because it feels pretty empty, and I still feel dead inside. 
But some of you are saying, today my situation is I'm hopeless. If you knew my circumstances, there's no way I'm going to find my way out of this. There's no way I get out of this without losing. This is, this is, I have no one that's going to help, no advocate. I've tried everything. My situation is hopeless. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm despairing. My future's dead. Or some are here saying today, I feel cut off from God. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's in my past, what's happened to me, what I've been a part of. You don't know what I've done. There's no way God wants me. You don't know the thoughts that I think when I'm laying there in bed at night with my head on the pillow, staring at the ceiling in the dark. You don't know the thoughts that are racing through my head or, or the voices when I'm driving to work and I'm trying to turn up the radio to drown out the voices that are saying, who would want you? Look what you've done. You know what you did and you're dragging those chains with you. You say, I'm so far from God, there's no way that he would want me. But you have to hear the end of this story. The Son of Man. Who is he? How does this work? Here's what it said hundreds of years before Jesus. Here's what it says, Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression, God says, of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you realize what that says? The true son of man, he took all of that. Why? He did it for you and for me. He did it to pay for our sins, to reconnect us to Jesus. He was placed in that tomb on Friday, but something was about to happen that the world may know that there is a God and what sort of God He is. There was a Sunday morning when some soldiers helplessly standing outside of that grave, they heard a noise. And it wasn't just the rattling of bones, it was the rumbling of the earth, rocks shaking. And God opened up that grave and Jesus raised out of the grave. And Christian, do you know... That when Jesus walked out of that grave, do you know this, Christian, that you walked out of that grave with him? You came out of that grave with him. So here's what that means. Don't retreat, Christian, back into the grave of sin and shame. He says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let those chains go. Come out of that grave because he says your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. You are forgiven past, present, and future because he walked out of that grave. Do you know that your circumstances, how could they possibly be hopeless when he's leveraging the same power that defeated sin and death? He's leveraging it in your life. He says, how could the one How could he, who did not spare his only son, not do everything for you? He says, I am making all things work together for good. If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? Your circumstances are not hopeless, so walk out of that grave. Are you looking at your life saying, it's empty, what's the purpose? He's calling you to himself, saying, I have a mission, I have a future for you, I have a hope for you. I am calling you into a life of meaning and purpose. And he says, and ultimately, you want to know what your purpose is? I've got heaven waiting for you, because when you actually go into your physical grave, it's just the beginning of the life that Jesus purchased for you. Do you want to know the symbol? Of all the symbols, when you think of God, what's the symbol? 
It's that one right there. It's the cross our Savior was nailed to and died, but he didn't stay on that cross. He went in the tomb, but he rose out out of the tomb. The grave is empty, and so our cross is empty. And when you see that, you know only God could defeat death and forgive your sins. There is a God, and you learn what kind of God that he is. That no matter what's happening in your life, he says, I will call you out of your grave that you might find life. I believe that there are some here today, there's some watching in the overflow section, there's some watching online, and you're here saying, man, I, I feel so far from God. Could he possibly want you? You know how much he wants you. He went, he let his skin and his flesh and his sinews and, and, and all get deteriorated down to dry bones. He did all of that. He died for you and he rose again to bring you with him. Today is the day that you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and find life. So if you're here in this room and you've never accepted the life that Jesus offers, today is the day he died for you and he rose for you so that you can spend eternity in heaven permanently forgiven. Make that decision today. Can we all just take a quiet moment before God? Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes? Christian, are you retreating back into the grave? The grave of shame, the grave of hopelessness, the grave of emptiness. Are you retreating into that grave? Come out of that grave and never return because your Savior brought you with him. But I want to talk to those of you who need to take that step for the first time and make Jesus your Lord and Savior. He loves you, he died for you, and he's offering you forgiveness. Find it today. I want to lead you, if that's you you, can, you, you can find salvation today. I want to lead you in just a simple prayer. Right there, wherever you're sitting, you might be watching online, watching on Overflow, in this room, wherever you're sitting, I want to lead you in a prayer. Is that you? Here's what I want you to do. If you want to put your faith in Jesus today, with nobody looking around, everyone's heads are bowed, eyes are closed, if that's you, I want you to slip your hand up in the air and put it right down. If that's you, you want to put your faith in Jesus, go ahead, slip it in the air. Amen. Praise God. Anyone else, wherever you're at, if you're watching online, there's a place that you can click. Do you want to put your faith in Jesus? Just slip your hand up in the air and put it back down. Say, that's me. I need to find salvation today. I want to lead you in this simple prayer right there, just silently in your heart. Make these words your own. Just simply say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking the death that I should have taken. Paying for my sins. I believe you rose up from the grave and that I came out of the grave with you. I believe that I have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.